Keith, I want to come back to a point you were making about, um, you know, how interventions to alcoholism um, usually and sort of need to come from all four quadrants. And I think the reason for that, a reason for that is that the effects of alcohol exist in all four quadrants and the addiction itself is a four quadrant shadow. Right. So let's take these sort of one at a time. So the effects of alcohol can be experienced both positive and negative in each of these quadrants. Right. So in the upper left quadrant, I mean, obviously, the the most significant thing that alcohol is doing is changing our state of consciousness where I am not satisfied with my current state of consciousness for any reason. Right. Whether that's because I'm stressed or because I'm addicted or, you know, there's any number of reasons or I'm anxious, I'm nervous. This will kind of set my nerves down. And, you know, there's a lot of a lot of wiggle. Rationalizations. That's right. But it's having a direct effect on your upper left interior consciousness and we can have fun with it. For me, alcohol is all about inertia. If I'm out with a group and we're moving, alcohol will be a lot of fun. The moment I stop moving, the moment I go by myself or I go home and I'm just sitting on the couch and you know the alcohol is leaving my system, I'm not having fun. I just get really sad, right? Oh. Alcohol has a huge depressive yeah. effect on me. Alcohol is well, a central yeah. system depressant. And what I've learned over the years is that it's not a fair trade-off. As much fun as I might have on a night out with my friends or my wife and, you know, drinking a bottle of wine or whatever, the sadness and the depression I'm going to feel on the other side of that so far outweigh that. And I'll often feel it for, you know, for, for a while. I mean, it can trigger a whole cycle of depression that could then take me a week or more to kind of pull myself out of. So I, over the years, you know, at this point, I only have maybe... You know, I drink maybe three or four times a year. It's very, very wow. rare, and it's usually under particular. So I'm, I'm sort of more like your wife in that sense. Yeah, right? you're like Ricky. That's right. So that's that's all happening in the upper left. In the upper right, obviously, when we're in those states of consciousness, we are expressing particular kinds of behavior, right? We're making certain kinds of decisions when we're in those altered states, and. You know, sometimes those decisions can be just like, you know, let's go to the next bar and continue partying and da la. Other times those those decisions can just be absolutely devastating, either to yourself or to someone else. All right. And then in the lower left, what you know, one of the effects of drinking is of course, as you mentioned, it's a social lubricant, right? It helps socialize. It helps a lot of people feel like socializing is a little bit easier. And by the way, if everyone else is drinking, I should too. So there's sort of that peer pressure aspect, right? That's right. And again, which isn't necessarily inherently negative, right? I'm not telling like 19-year-old college students, no, you shouldn't do this because da 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 Like people are going to go out and they're going to have their fun. They're going to seek fun. They're going to seek, you know, communities of people they can have fun with. And alcohol is one of those things that can be fun. However, at the same time, it can obviously have a tremendously destructive effect on our relationships, on our families, on our jobs, on our, you know, and so forth. That's so right. that's sort of the effects in the lower left. In the lower right quadrant, we have all of these collective behaviors, which again, you were alluding to earlier. I, th- I think I'm just trying to sort of organize it into a nice little map here. You are. Um, you have all the, the, the collective behaviors around alcohol that are typically associated with things like sports or with concerts. One of the only times I've drank in the last year was when I went to a concert. I went to see Mr. Bungle in Denver and <laughs> I went with a friend of mine and I had a few drinks and it was, you know, it was fun. And when I got home that night, 
I felt kind of sad. So, you know, I can give myself some allowances even knowing what the ramifications of that decision is going to be. So those are sort of the effects in all four quadrants. Yep. Now we can look at it in terms of the addiction itself. I well, mean, wait, I want to make one comment. Yeah, don't lose what you're going to say, okay? You mm -hmm. know, okay, hold on. One way that I know if someone is an alcoholic or not, they'll have an experience where they drink too much and they'll come in. And if they're an alcoholic, there'll be a part of me that feels worried and a little sick. And if they're not an alcoholic, I find it hilarious. Mm. Okay. I'll be laughing at it. Okay. Oh, really? Okay. And that's my unconscious. And my unconscious has been pretty right about that. So anyway, you were making another yeah. go on, go on. Well, and related to what you're saying, Keith, I think one of the cycles that people often find themselves in is you know, again, a lot of times people, we see this with COVID, the, the, the rate of alcohol consumption really grew with COVID. Now, part of that was simply because we didn't have much else to do. There's not a lot of ways to entertain ourselves and drinking is sort of the classic way, you know, sort of a, a shortcut to some kind of entertainment. So there's obviously that, but there's also all the stresses and the sadness. And, you know, we were dealing with a lot when we were walking through COVID with all the shutdowns and, and all of that. And I think one of the cycles that people find themselves and can be hard to break out of is sort of this joy and sadness cycle where you feel sad so you want to drink so you can make yourself feel better you drink you detox you feel sad again because it's a depressant and you're detoxing and then that makes you want to drink again so you get into this constant perpetual cycle and then before you know it you have dug yourself down into into a hole so now if we look at addiction you know alcohol addiction itself is like we mentioned it is itself a four quadrant shadow which is why it requires a four quadrant intervention if we're only you know trying to intervene in someone's dependency on alcohol but we're only coming from one quadrant chances are it's not going to be very effective because there are three other entire facets or dimensions of of ourselves that are not being addressed right yeah. so that becomes really you know obviously really tricky but when it comes to addiction in the four quadrants in the upper left obviously we have our you know various emotional dependencies a lot of times when you tell someone to if you cut someone off at a bar sometimes they'll have a very emotional reaction to it there is a subjective addiction to this just as much as there is in the upper right a physiological addiction well alcohol also alcohol activates the anger center in the hypothalamus yeah i mean i don't know in those pot clubs they have in copenhagen i doubt if they have many bar fights there right but, you know, they, i imagine they have so why well, alcohol makes you aggressive uh, right. So now some people don't, but right. couples, I encourage couples independent of whether they're out, you know, this is now if they're just regular drinkers. And by the way, Pericles said in the 1600s, the difference between um, a medicine and a poison is the dosage. Right. And, that, and that's true for alcohol. Look, look, you know, a couple wants to go out and share a bottle of wine and have a really great time and they're not alcoholics. Go for it. You know, you, you go to the wedding, you drink too much and you're hungover the next day and you feel shitty. Okay. You know, don't do that again if you don't want to do it again. And non-alcoholics tend to not do it again. And so right. the prohibition didn't work. You know, right. the fact that women got the vote, and then one of the first things that happened is they tried to vote alcohol out of the universe. Didn't really, what it did is it created these huge crime families, very much like the war on drugs created these huge narco empires all around the world. So that's not going to work. What works? What works is development. What works is good education, not bullshit education. What works is recognizing it's a family problem. What works is don't normalize having a practicing addict in the family, deal with it, right. things like that. And, you know, and that's what therapists are for. 
to point that kind of stuff out and help people with it. And I just like with personality disorders, I spend probably as much or more time helping people deal with other people who are alcoholic drinkers than I am yep. dealing with alcoholic drinkers themselves. Well, and, and I think this leads us to a, you know another interesting point here is how these addictions are often sort of sometimes even promoted by our surrounding culture, as you were talking about, right? That cultural piece, the cultural attitudes around alcohol, whether the culture we're talking about is family, right? So if you grow up in a family of alcoholics, that might be normalizing the addiction to you, where to the point where when you're a little bit older in life, you can justify making certain decisions because you saw your family. And as far as you know, everything was basically okay enough, right? I mean, sure, I've got some traumas, but who doesn't? So it becomes sort of a way to justify that. Your actual family conditioning can uh, have an impact there. But what I find really interesting, Keith, is that in Europe, so Americans per capita drink three-fourths as much as Europeans do. We drink about 75% per capita as Europe. So they drink a lot more than we do. However, Americans have a significantly higher mortality rate, for example, associated with alcohol in the lower right quadrant. So we have these cultural attitudes in the lower left that are sort of regulating you know, how we think about these things, how we, how we feel about them. But then in the lower right, there's actual statistics that we can look at from one society to another society. And I think it's fascinating that Americans drink less than Europeans, but often have worse outcomes in, in, in terms of lethality of alcohol. And, you know, and let's be fair here, one of the reasons for that might be is that simply you know, in the lower right quadrant, America geographically is a very, very different place than Europe. So you're going to see a lot more drunk driving, for example, in America, because there are a lot more people who use cars in America. So that is obviously going to lead to, you know, increased mortality rates. Well, there's, there's some other stuff, too. Part of it is the, the way that children are included in social events in Europe. Mm. So sort of the taboos. Sort of the, uh, what we would call sort of the zone four, the outside of the lower left. Here's some of the rules yeah. that are yeah, sort so, of governing how we so be together. So children are given a little bit amounts of alcohol. Binge culture is frowned upon in, in Europe, though I think Germany probably has a, the highest per capita of, of any mm-hmm. country there. And there's a couple of Austrian kids I met once when I was doing ceremony out on the Green River with these guys and uh, with this shaman. And they, they came from Austria to Seattle. Mm-hmm. And they were shocked by high school culture. God, people just drink till they pass out. I mean, what's that about? I mean, they were just shocked because where they were, kids would have a beer or two. And then here's just the other thing. Europe has banned an enormous amount of toxins that are not banned in the United States. For instance, you can't sell American bread in Japan or in Europe because there's toxins in American bread that they ban in Europe. Anytime you start increasing the toxic load in people, that affects their neural functioning. And so the general lowering of health, you know, the amount of sugar and crap and stuff, the American diet produces illness. So all that kind of stuff dissociates us from our bodies. As Mm -hmm. we get dissociated from our bodies, then one, we want to feel better. The American medical system, allopathic medicine, is take something to feel better. Don't look at root causes. Functional medicine is still not the primary thing. All this stuff lends itself to the denial and rationalization systems associated with drinking. So, you know, it's, it expands and expands. Inner mm-hmm. consciousness says, let's look at all this stuff. You know, right. let's, let's look at not just all four quadrants, let's look at all the value memes. 
Let's let's look at the other toxins in the environment. Get rid of them. Maybe that'll make us make us feel better about our bodies and maybe give us a little bit of cognitive clarity. And there's an awful lot of things that work synergistically in both a positive way and in a negative way. And I think it was the um, the CDC that said they thought that basically if they wanted to look for the optimal health, they said maybe three percent of Americans felt fit into that category. Mm. And I thought, God. And so alcoholism is just another medication, partially, but on top of a genetic predisposition, you know, all of us, on top of some of us being genetically programmed to not, never be able to drink alcohol without it killing us. Yeah. And so that leaves us, yes. we wanna wake up, we wanna help people with it, we wanna have an integral response to it, um, we wanna have an understanding of it from a developmental standpoint, um, and, I always think it's a good idea to say, hey, look, you know, on the floor in the, in the living room, there's an elephant there. I can see it. Do you see, you guys see it? See that elephant? Um, I mean, let's just start off by saying, you know, we have company. We have an elephant in the living room. Right. And that helps. Yeah. And that's part of the job for me as a therapist always. I'm always supposed to point to the elephants in yeah. the living room. Well, and there's a lot of background things that have an effect here too. Like, you know, when we're talking about elements and culture that can reinforce addiction. I mean, one of the things we also might want to put on the table is just how hyper agentic and hyper individualistic American culture often is, oh, yeah. which creates this sort of this felt sense of disconnection. There's a disconnection that's already there. And we look to things like alcohol again, which can be a very profound in some cases, social lubricant to actually give us this feeling like we're reconnecting with a group of people or with, you know, uh, an entire stadium of cheering fans, whether you're, you know, there for music or sports or what have you. So it's a way to compensate in a lot of ways, either to compensate for or to completely avoid these feelings of isolation that are oftentimes, you know, correlated with particularly American culture, not only American culture, but particularly American culture, and how this also shows up in the lower right. You know, you mentioned we tried to totally ban alcohol, and guess what? A, a massive black market erupt because in the lower right quadrant, these systems, right, the economic systems behind alcohol and alcoholism are huge, and they have their own inertia. As long as there's a demand, there's always going to be a supply. There's always going to be a supply. There's always going to be in the lower right quadrant certain you know mechanisms and machinations that are being established in order to deliver that supply to the demand. Sure. I just want to highlight the last thing you said about recovery and interventions existing in all four quadrants. So we've laid out the four quadrants of the effects of alcohol, the four quadrants of the addiction itself, and really looking at this as a shadow that exists in all four quadrants. Right, an interior shadow, a behavioral shadow, or a physiological shadow even. There's a cultural shadow, and then also a systemic or economic shadow. Mm -hmm. And we really want to uncover all those shadows and bring some light to that and you know, find a better way to sort of understand and reassemble all these, all these different perspectives. But then the interventions themselves, because obviously in the upper left, it's important to be able to confront the addiction, to actually admit 
that you have a problem, as you were alluding to earlier. It, it requires uh, you know, us to establish a sense of inner discipline when it comes to actually seeking help or seeking new behaviors in order to get on top of that addiction. There's all sorts of sort of interior rules that we have to put in place, right, that we have to follow. And then there's sort of, what you mentioned with AA in particular, there's the strategy of actually helping to connect people to a sense of something higher, a higher power or a higher purpose which to me is sort of cutting against what I mentioned earlier as being that hyper-agentic, hyper-individualistic sort of isolation that a lot of people feel. By plugging them into this amber sensibility of a higher purpose or a higher calling or a higher deity or what have you, that helps to alleviate some of those sort of pressures that might be driving us into addiction in the first place. And the lower left, obviously support groups are central to this. You need to have a community of people who you fully trust to make yourself vulnerable and to reveal sort of, you know, how destructive this has been in your own life, how difficult it's been to confront these things, right? All of this takes place in sort of this little sangha that we're able to create for ourselves. And then finally, in the lower right, there's the availability of treatment programs themselves. Some of them are very affordable, like AA. Some of them, I've got a friend who's in a treatment program right now that is astronomically expensive, right? And often one of the problems that we see is some of the best modalities that can really help people dislodge themselves from their addiction are only being made available in these ridiculously expensive um, treatment centers, which can sometimes run up to you know $10,000 a month is one of them that you know that 30, I recently 000. heard about. Thirty thousand a month for some. <laughs> <laughs>